0: Okay, so I've got a case of the collapse neonate for you, and as promised in the introduction, I'm gonna make this a very interactive case. And I don't know if you all remember the books you used to get as a child, the Choose My Own Adventure books, where you would come to a certain page, on that page you maybe would have three options. You picked option A, you went to a certain page, option B another page, and option C another page. Each of those pages you would have a completely different story. And as the book went along, you would go to another page and have further options. So the story you chose as the book went along was completely different. And then you would have a completely different ending as well. So this is how this case is going to work. I'm going to stop at various points in this case, and I'm going to ask you guys to vote over in the YouTube chat on an intervention or a series of interventions as to which we should choose. I'm going to go with the most popular answer, even if that's a bad answer. Um, and the story in this case is going to change completely based on your interaction. So it's good as the day has gone on we've got more and more questions and comments coming through in the YouTube chat so hopefully this is going to work okay. Although when originally I had planned this idea it was meant to be to the live conference of 300 people in the room. So we'll see how this works over the internet in various different countries. So I'm going to talk about a collapsed knee it today and our case we've got a three-day-old baby boy um, born by full term, normal vaginal delivery, birth weight of three and a half kilos. The baby was born after an uneventful pregnancy, Mum scans were normal during the pregnancy and there was no risk factors at all for sepsis. Day one of life the baby check was done, everything was normal and the baby went home very shortly after that. Day two of life, uh, no real concerns by the parents, maybe towards the end of the day the baby wasn't feeding quite as well as they had the first day. But nothing that really alarmed them. They were, however, more concerned on day three when they got up. They couldn't get the baby to wake to feed, and um, looked much paler than what it had done previously. And as the day went on, the baby started having episodes of stiffening. So an ambulance was called, and the baby was taken to the emergency department. So initial assessment in the emergency department: so there's clear signs of airway obstruction. We've got seesaw breathing and a gurgly noise coming from the airway. From a breathing point of view, there's hypoventilation with a respiratory rate of 18. SATs are only 82% despite being in 100% oxygen via an non-rebreather mask. Listening into the chest, there's poor entry throughout the chest and lots of transmitted sounds as well. Going on to the circulation, there's clear signs of shock. We've got tachycardia, heart rate of 187, hypotension with a MAP of 34 and a prolonged central capillary refill time. Of four seconds. Peripheries are cool all the way up to the trunk and our peripheral pulses are actually quite difficult to palpate, although we can feel the central pulses and importantly the brachial pulses and the femoral pulses are of equal volume. Listening to the heart, there's a 1 over 6 ejection systolic murmur which is heard all over the precordium. Going on to D, there is clear signs of seizure activity so we've got lip smacking, cycling movements of the limbs, and episodes of stiffening. Coma scale is 3 out of 15. We've got a BM of 4.2 millimoles per litre. And pupils are large at size 6. And although they do react to light, they're quite sluggish on reaction. Um, the anterior fontanelle appears full. Going on to exposure, the abdomen is soft and non-tender. There's no masses or again There's no other signs of injury or trauma in the baby and the baby's hypothermic with a temperature of 35.7. So we go on ahead and do the interventions you would expect to happen in any emergency department. So the airway is open with basic airway opening manoeuvres, the back of the throat is suctioned out with a yanker sucker and we put a Goodell airway in. Important thing to note the baby tolerates the Goodell airway um, so we put the baby onto an Irish tea piece, give them a little bit of peep, and as well we said the baby's is hypoventilating and during some of the longer pauses between the bathing, the baby does need the odd ventilatory breath as well. Peripheral venous access is attempted, unfortunately this is unsuccessful. So an Ilo line is sited in the right tibia, 20 ml per kilo of normal saline is pushed in, and we also take a capillary blood gas off as well. To treat the seizure, a dose of lorazepam, of 100 mics per kilo is administered. So, going back to reassess following those interventions, the airway is now patent with a Goodell airway in situ. However, following the lorazepam, the baby has become fully apneic and is now needing continuous bagging. Saturations on that are 92%. Going on to look at the cardiovascular system again. So we've given our 120 mls per kilo fluid bolus, but the cardiovascular system really remains unchanged. Still tachycardic, still hypotensive, still got a prolonged cap rate full time. Going on to D, the erazepan has worked from a seizure point of view. So the seizure has now terminated. Coma scale remains at three. And although pupils are a little bit smaller now, the seizure has stopped at size four. The pupils are still quite sluggish to light. And that capillary blood gas that we sent we'll take a look at it so we've got a pH of 6.982 so a fairly severe acidosis and that's made up of a mixed respiratory and metabolic acidosis CO2 of 12.4 and a base excess of minus eight looking at the metabolic component that's made up mostly of an elevated lactate we can see we've got lactate there of 6.4 other important things to point out in the blood gas and you get a lot of information on the electrolytes and other things as well so we've got a sodium which is in the normal range, which is good, 140, so we're not going to be able to use any of the tips we've learned from Peter so far. Um, potassium is slightly on the high side though at 5.9, um, although it's important to remember this is a squeeze capillary sample that was very difficult to get in a shut down baby. Calcium is low, 0.8, and importantly hemoglobin is within the normal range for a baby of three days of age at 182, and we've got a BM of 4.2. So this brings us on to the first decision-making point for you guys. So I want you to go over to the YouTube chat and give me a yes or a no as to whether we should intubate this baby now. And I'm going to wait for your answer and go with the most popular answer. Okay, so you guys have voted yes, so we're going to go with that. So we go ahead and give an induction agent and a muscle relaxant. No trouble getting the grade one view, as you can see on the screen. No trouble putting the tube down. But shortly after we pass the tube we get a bradycardia which proceeds into cardiac arrest cpr is carried on for 30 minutes but unfortunately it's unsuccessful okay so we're going to have to try that again so intubate now i'm not going to ask a yes or no i'm going to go ahead and click no and we've got a series of interventions on the screen that we can potentially do at this stage So again I want you to vote over in the YouTube chat as to which of these we should do at this stage. So in your list include everything that you want to do. If you leave it out from the list I'm going to take that as a vote for a no on each of these interventions. So go ahead now and vote over in the YouTube chat. Your choice here is nasogastric tube, adrenaline push dose or infusion, a further fluid bolus, a second line, calcium gluconate, antibiotics, A chest x-ray, starting a processing infusion or a CT brain. Okay so we're starting to get some answers coming through so I think with this baby there's two main things that concern me and why I think intubating right now um, is maybe a bad idea. The first is the saturations of 92% despite being bagged at 100% oxygen so anybody who intubates small babies on a regular basis knows that they desaturate incredibly quickly when you try to intubate them. And that's even with good pre-oxygenation. The problem is with our sats of 92%, we're already at that steep part of the curve where the sats are absolutely going to plummet the moment we stop bagging them. And this is a baby I think is, who's going to tolerate hypoxia incredibly badly and is likely to arrest with a significant hypoxia. That we're expecting if we try and intubate them. The second big problem is the hypotension. We're all taught in resuscitation courses that hypotension is a peri-arrest sign. It's a late feature of shock. And if we go ahead and try and intubate this baby um, with the saturation, sorry, with the blood pressure where it is, there's a very real risk that this baby is going to arrest. So the two things I think we need to optimize are the blood pressure and also the saturations. So going back to the list of options that we have, so nasogastric tube, that would be something I would really encourage you to put in any time you have to start bagging a small baby. And the reason for that is when you're bagging a patient, you're hoping that the gas you're giving goes into the lungs, but inevitably a lot of it goes down into the stomach. And with each breath you give, more and more gas goes into the stomach. And as the stomach becomes distended, it splints the diaphragm, And I've seen this numerous times over my career where small babies in particular are absolutely impossible to ventilate because of diaphragmatic splinting. So I find whenever I'm having to bag one of these small babies, even for a short period of time, putting an asogastric tube in, aspirating it at the start isn't enough. You need somebody to continuously aspirate it while you're continuously bagging and quite often you, you avoid any problems as well from doing this and I think the risk of vomiting and aspiration is also going to be less if you're not distending the stomach. Now, adrenaline push dose would be my preferred method of actually correcting this baby's blood pressure. And I think the reason for that is we don't have all day to get this baby stabilised and tubed. Bagging a patient is not a good place to be and you don't want to do that for a long period of time. The other problem is there's a very serious process going on with this baby. And we need to actually get on with diagnosing it and treating it. So I think probably we need to get this baby tubed in the next three to five minutes. And given that we've given one fluid bolus, it has made absolutely no difference. I think it probably wouldn't be in the baby's best interest to keep working down the fluid bolus route, realizing it's not worked after 60 mils per kilo, starting an infusion and intubating the baby after half an hour. I think push dose adrenaline is the ideal way to fix the blood pressure in this patient. I would however give another fluid bolus. We've only given 20 mils per kilo. And I think another 20 millis per kilo but I would chase the adrenaline in with the fluid bolus rather than giving it and waiting to see if it works. Second line, um, most of you did vote for a second line and I'm going to be argumentative here and say I probably wouldn't put a second line in this baby at this stage and I'll explain my reasoning for that. The first thing is, over the next three to five minutes, we have quite a few jobs that we want to do. So we're going to need to fix the oxygenation, hopefully with an NG tube that will improve. We're going to have to fix the hypotension with a push of adrenaline and hopefully a bit more fluid. And we're also going to have to prepare to intubate. So that's a a lot of jobs to do, even for a big, experienced team. And if we send a person to try and get a second line, one, that's one less person to help with those jobs. And two, it's a distraction for the rest of the team. And given that we can actually manage with the single access, everything that we're giving is gonna go via a push um, into the single line. I would leave this for now. We're certainly gonna want a second line, but I don't think we need it in the next five minutes. The next two drugs are exactly the same story. Um, All our vasoactive drugs work by increasing intracellular calcium. If our calcium is low as it is in our baby, They're not going to work very effectively. But the problem is we've only got one line. Calcium is going to go over about 10 minutes. Does it really make sense to tie our single line up with that calcium infusion, meaning we can't give adrenaline, we can't give fluid, we can't give our induction agents. That doesn't make sense to me. We're going to have to fix the calcium, but I would leave it for the next five minutes and do the other three essential jobs that we need to do. Antibiotics, exactly the same story. But you'd be surprised the number of times I go down to a sick child and that line over that first five minutes is tied up with somebody running antibiotics. They absolutely must be given early, and sepsis is a definite potential cause in this baby, but I wouldn't be doing them in the next five minutes. I leave that line free for drugs which are slightly more up the priority order. Chest x-ray, really important when you've got a collapsed neonate. I find you pick up a lot of the cardiac babies by having a big heart on the chest x-ray and that can often be one of the first features that points you down that route. But we're bagging a patient, we're about to put a tube in, I don't think the time to do that is just now. After the tube is down is the ideal time for the chest x-ray. Prostan infusion, again I would encourage you early to start a prostin infusion in babies you think are potentially got a duct dependent cardiac lesion. But again, we've got one line. Um, the next five minutes, I, I think I would see how the intubation goes and then strongly consider starting a prostate infusion if we're still unhappy. CT brain. Again, the baby has features that may make us want to do a CT brain, but at a time when you're holding an airway open, bagging, and you've got a hypotensive patient, the CT scanner is the last place that we should be taking this baby in the next few minutes. Okay so let's go back and reassess our baby after the interventions that we have done. So the airway remains patent with the Goodell airway in and actually after we put the nasogastric tube in and got somebody aspirating continuously the bagging has improved. We've got sats up to 100% and they've been there now for three minutes. The cardiovascular numbers have also improved, we've got a heart rate down to 172, MAP is up to 41, CAP refill is down to three seconds And that's after 40 mls per kilo of fluid and one mic per kilo of adrenaline as a push. D really is unchanged from what it was before. Okay so this brings us back to the second decision making point and the question is should we intubate this baby now? So go ahead now and vote over in the YouTube chat yes or no. Okay so you're all voting yes again so we're going to go for yes. So yes I think is the right answer here, Um, you often get a window in these children as to when you can safely intubate them and I don't, as we mentioned already, this isn't a child I think we can take all day trying to get the numbers absolutely perfect. There's a downside to that, one you can lose the window, the baby could vomit and aspirate at any second and as well we've got this process going on that we don't know what it is and we haven't done anything about it as yet so we're going to have to get on and find that out. So this brings us on to your, your intubation plan, and there's four parts that I want you to vote on for this. Um, so I want you to pick your blade, pick your tube, pick the drugs that you want to use, and yes or no at the bottom as to whether you want to use prophylactic atropine. So for the blade choice, you've got a Miller1, MAC2, or CMAC. Tube is a 30 microcuff, 301 cuffed, or 3.5 uncuffed. For the drug choice, we can go with no drugs, ketamine only. Ketamine Rock, Ketamine Sucks, Propofol Rock and Propofol Sucks and then a yes or no at the end to prophylactic atropine. So go ahead and vote now over in the YouTube chat. Okay, so for the blade you guys have voted C-Mac. Okay, um, I'll click on CMAC. And I think this would probably be my preferred choice. Um, looking at the options we have, the, the Miller one is obviously the traditional choice. In general a straight blade in a baby of this size where you lift the epiglottis directly is going to give you a better direct view than a curved blade in the vallecula. And that's due to the big floppy epiglottis and the lax gloss epiglottic ligament which is often incompletely lifted with a curved blade in the vallecula. Um, What I would say though is if you're somebody who uses a MAC blade all day every day and intubates a neonate maybe once or twice a year. You might actually want to stick with your tried and trusted MAC blade, rather than using a Miller blade, if you don't have a video laryngoscope available. And as long as you combine that with a lot of external laryngeal manipulation and use a stylated tube, nine times out of ten you're going to get an intubatable view. It's likely to be a grade two view, but you'll be able to intubate nine times out of ten. And you may have more success with that than you do with a Miller one and trying to lift an epiglottis, which isn't something you often do. As I've said, my choice would be a video laryngoscope. I use a video laryngoscope for probably 99% of my intubations, a whole variety of different ones. And if you're in that same situation where you infrequently intubate babies, my advice would be to get familiar with a video laryngoscope in your adult patients. The technique to using it in a small baby is exactly the same as in an adult. Um, You don't have to lift uh, an epiglottis, you go into the molecula. Even if you're using a straight blade, I normally use a straight blade in the molecula. You've got a big magnified view of the airway, and it's really simple to intubate these small babies. I think it takes a lot of the worry out of doing it. So that would be my advice. Um, for the tube, you've gone for 3.5 uncuffed. Um, so I would prefer a cuffed tube um, in these patients. Um, obviously, practice varies throughout the world. Um, in my experience, where you've got a baby this sick, you want to tube them once and once only, and a cuff tube is really the only way to guarantee, well it doesn't guarantee you're going to have a cuff rupture, but to give yourself the best chance of tubing the baby once and once only. We know from studies that up to 30% of the time you use an uncuffed tube, you're going to have to go back and upsize that tube because of cuff leak. This is a very sick baby, a baby you might need to do CPR on, where high pressures are going to be on the chest. I would put a cuff tube down and your job is done, but we'll, we'll go with a three and a half uncuffed. Um, What about the drugs then? Ketamine and rock. Um, And I'm very boring with my intubation drugs. I tend to use the same stuff again and again. And ketamine and rock is one I would use for this particular patient. Um, I think that no drugs and ketamine only isn't probably a good choice for this particular patient. And the reason for this, this is a really sick baby who you need to get tubed on the first attempt. So you want to give yourself the best chance of doing that. So I think a muscle relaxant where you have the cords wide and open, where you have no difficulty with the tongue, muscle tone low, is going to be your best way of doing that. Um, As well, although this baby is unconscious, their airway protective reflexes may still actually be present. So if you put a blade into the back of the throat, this baby may gag and vomit and then you've got aspiration to deal with, or they may develop laryngospasm. So I think a muscle relaxant makes sense, particularly given you're bagging this baby anyway. From a sedative sedative point of view, you've got a choice of ketamine or propofol and propofol is absolutely contraindicated in this patient. It's highly likely to make the baby arrest. Um, If you've got it given the hypotension and the instability of the baby, your ketamine dose, you're going to want to significantly reduce the ketamine dose down. Um, I would probably use about half a milligram per kilogram of ketamine in this baby. And I find babies that are unconscious like this um, they will go out like a light um, with a little bit of ketamine. You don't need to give a big dose, and a big standard dose of ketamine, one or two per kilo, may well make this baby a rest given their hypotension. Muscle relaxant choice, you, we could argue all day about rock versus sucks. Um, I use rock most of the time because the lower side effect profile. I think the big side effect you're going to be worried about in a small baby um, is a bradycardia. With sucks, and it's fairly common with sucks, particularly with a second dose in these small babies. And this is a baby who's going to tolerate a bradycardia incredibly unwell. So I would avoid sucks for that reason. The other reason might be the high potassium you've got in the capillary gas. Although we have to remember it was a squeeze sample, and you could also argue that actually the serum potassium is likely to be in the normal range. So you could you could argue you could argue it either way. The, the other slight advantage to sucks in this scenario would be that your neuro exam is going to come back that bit sooner and given that our patient has been seizing it would be useful to see that but i think when everything up um, the stability and lower side effect profile of rock would be the reason i would go for it prophylactic atropine what was the answer to that one so you've gone for yes for that Um, That would be my personal preference, Um, I tend to, I don't use atropine prophylactically for all my intubations, where I tend to use it is the smaller babies, the sicker babies are babies that have already started to have bradycardias. Um, We had a bit of a chat over this when some of the other talks were playing earlier on with the panel and I seem to be an outlier on my use of atropine, Um, but again I'm quite happy to be an outlier. Um, I don't mind the tachycardia that comes after the intubation but I really don't like the bradycardia that comes during an intubation attempt and I would much rather prevent that and deal with a little bit of tachycardia afterwards and like I said don't use it for all the patients but the smaller sicker ones where a bradycardia is going to be you know it could be the end event for this child prevention is better than cure so I'm going to go ahead and click on yes Okay so we go ahead with the CMAC. We don't have any trouble getting a grade one view. We do need a little push of adrenaline um, because the blood pressure drops slightly after the induction agents are given and we go ahead and put our three and a half on cuff tube down. Unfortunately though there's a large leak around the tube after it goes down and we need to go back and change it over for a micro cuff tube. Um, the baby tolerates that fairly well, and we don't need to give any atropine, we don't need to give any further adrenaline for the second tube change. Okay, so we'll go back and reassess the patient following intubation. We've got a microcuff tube, 9.5 centimetres at the lips, and a useful formula for you to remember is you, you take six and add the baby's weight to it. So our baby's 3.5 kilos, add six onto it, gives you 9.5, and, and that's where the tube should be at the lips add an extra centimetre on for a nasal tube. We put the baby onto the baby pack ventilator, fairly standard settings, 25 over 6, rate of 30, eye time of 0.6 in 40% oxygen. On that, sats are 99%. Listening into the chest now after intubation, the air entry is much better, but there's still a few transmitted sounds about. Got onto the circulation, things have improved there as well. We've got a heart rate down to 162, We've got a MAP of 44 and a CAP refill down to three seconds. We can now feel the peripheral pulses as well, which is good. Um, And our um, systolic murmur 1 over 6 remains audible all over the precordium. That's after two 20 mils per kilo fluid bolus and two pushes of adrenaline, one mic per kilo each. One of those pre-intubation and one of them for the slight drop in blood pressure during the intubation attempt. But we're now 10 minutes past that and haven't needed any further adrenaline. Going on to look at D, um, no further seizure activity although it's important to remember we are sedated and muscle relaxed at this stage. As you'd expect in a sedated muscle relaxed patient coma scale is 3 out of 15. Pupils are size 4, they remain sluggish to light. We've got a BM of 6.7 and the anterior fontanelle remains full. Okay so the next interactive slide then we've got a series of potential interventions we can do at this stage. So again I want you to go over to the YouTube chat vote on which of these we should do at this stage. Importantly if you leave it out from your list I'm going to take it as a no, you don't want to do it. So the potential interventions we can do, we can convert the oral endotracheal tube over to a nasal tube, we can do another blood gas, we can start an adrenaline infusion, put a second line in, send off some bloods, put a central arterial line in, give some antibiotics and a cyclovir. do a chest x-ray, start some prostin. do a lumbar puncture and do a CT brain. So I'll give you a few minutes to get your answers in. Okay, so starting off, I know your answers are still coming, but I'll start off with the oral to nasal endotracheal tube conversion. Your, your answer to that one was a no. And I think this is absolutely the right answer. Um, Why would you even think of doing that? Um, Well it varies, the the practice varies throughout the world but certainly in Northern Ireland we do like a nasal tube in our patients in the PIC unit, if possible. And that is very much, if possible, Um, the patient has to be stable enough to tolerate it. And the reason for that is the failure risk with a nasal tube is higher, it's a technically more difficult procedure. Rather than passing a tube straight down the trachea, you're having to bring a tube all the way up and then turn it down. So your failure rate is higher. And our baby is a baby who will not tolerate a failed intubation very well at all. Even if you were to change the tube over and um, have no problems, you've gained yourself nothing in the District General Hospital because the, the advantages of changing the tube to nasal, it's more comfortable for the patient so you can run them on a bit less sedation And it's less likely to fall out. But you're going to keep this kid sedated and muscle relaxed. So you have no advantages. There's potential disadvantages of failure. And the biggest disadvantage, I think, in this scenario, even if it goes smoothly, is while you're doing an unnecessary job, there's 20 other necessary jobs that you're not doing. So um, I wouldn't recommend this at all. Um, Repeat blood gas. Um, Did we want this? Okay, so I'll click on this. And show you your repeat blood gas. Yeah, pH is improving, um, CO2 is still up a little bit at 6.5, probably the best way to bring that down would actually be to do a bit of suction um, rather than turning the ventilator up. We can still hear some transmitted sounds in the chest and that's a very important thing to do shortly after you intubate a patient. Um, Basex is improving, lactate is starting to clear, sodium is still normal, potassium is still high but importantly it's still a squeeze sample. Um, looking at our calcium, it's come up nicely over one, which would be our target, um, following a calcium correction. And the hemoglobin's dropped a little bit down to 178, but that would be in keeping with the baby who's had 40 mls per kilo of fluid and a little bit of dilution from that. Okay, um, adrenaline infusion. So that was a yes. So we can go ahead and start an adrenaline infusion. Um, I would maybe be tempted not to start it at this stage given the fact that we've given a push of adrenaline last 10 minutes ago and despite that the blood pressure has actually continued to improve from where it was even during the intubation. The fact that our lactate's is clearing, the fact that our pulses are improving. Starting it I don't think there's anything wrong with it because it's, and it's probably the safer option to start it and then you can always wean it down to stop. An alternative option would, of course, be to get it prepared, because that's one of the slow bits. Have it attached so it's ready to run should the blood pressure drop again, and we're not going to have to go back to push dose adrenaline. Um, Peripheral adrenaline is really easy to make up. I'll just do a quick recap on it. What you want to do is put one milligram of adrenaline in 50 mils of saline. And I appreciate we're people watching from all around the world, and there's lots of different ways of doing this, but I'm going to tell you my way. And if you don't have a way, then you can copy this. So one milligram of adrenaline in 50 mils of saline. So that's one of those little ampules of one mil of one in a thousand or one of the pre syringes, 10 mils of one in 10,000 made up to 50 mils with saline. What you want to do is run that at 0.3 times the patient's weight in mils an hour. So for our three and a half kilo patient, it's about a mil an hour. And that's going to give you roughly 0.1 mics per kilo per minute, which is the starting dose I would use for most hypotensive patients. One of the key things about starting this, and this is the commonest mistake I would see, and this mistake causes you more problems in a small baby, is forgetting about the dead space. If you look at the picture I have on the side, the little cannula has a dead space of 0.1 mils. The connector going onto it has a dead space of 0.3 mils. So total dead space of 0.4 mils. If we were to start that peripheral adrenaline infusion on our baby, it would take over 20 minutes. To get through the dead space and reach the patient. So one of the key pearls I would share with you today is know the dead space of the equipment you're going to be using and particularly when you're dealing with small patients. So you can bolus the drug through that dead space and it's going to reach the patient without any delay. Okay so we'll go ahead and start that peripheral adrenaline infusion. Second line and I think that makes perfect sense now and we've got time to do that So we go ahead and luckily now the baby's perfusion is a little bit better. We're able to get a cannula in the back of the left hand. And as we get that cannula in, we are actually able to get a little bit of blood from it. It's not enough blood to do all the blood tests that you can possibly think of, but we can do three from the following list. So I want you to go over to the YouTube chat and vote on which of the three tests we should do from this list. So your choices are full blood picture, coagulation screen... UNA, liver function and CRP are one test. Bone profile and magnesium are another. We've also got blood gas, blood culture, ammonia, grip and cross-match and meningococcal PCR. So go ahead and vote now. Okay, so the three tests that you guys have chosen were blood gas, UNA, UNA, liver function and CRP and ammonia as well. Okay, so we're going to come back to those a little bit later on. Okay, central and arterial line, did we want that? So um, there was a no to a central and arterial line at this stage. Um, Antibiotics and acyclovir? Yeah, I think this is a must. Um, Sepsis is probably the most common cause of a collapsed neonate, so I think it makes sense to cover for that and I think you're going to have to do that with every collapsed neonate that you encounter. So cefotaxime and Amoxil should cover any bacterial infections and we also need to cover herpes as well. So I would add a in particularly given the abnormal neurology in our patient. Uh, chest x-ray. You've said no to that. Um, I'm assuming that's an admission of in the YouTube chat rather than um, you wouldn't really do that. So I'm going to be kind and show you the chest x-ray. I don't believe anybody would intubate a small neonate. Um, and not do a chest x-ray, so I'll show you the result of that one. So you have a look at the x-ray there, you can see the endotracheal tube is adequately positioned, we've got a nasogastric tube down below the diaphragm. Heart size, I've said, is really important, When and one of the main reasons for doing the x-rays in these claps neonates, and we can see we've got a fairly normal looking heart size here. Um, lung fields are a little bit hazy, but there's no big focal changes in them, so a reasonably normal x-ray with adequately positioned tubes. Um, starting a prostate infusion uh, Yeah, you've a no to that and I would at this stage agree with that um, Wouldn't have been wrong to have started it earlier on, but I think at this stage, um, given the information that we have um, We've got an improving hemodynamics, a blood pressure that's improved. Our peripheral pulses have come back and are now palpable We've got a clearing lactate and we've got a now a normal looking heart size on a chest x-ray so I think it's unlikely this baby has a duct-dependent congenital heart disease because things have improved and if it was this we haven't actually done anything that would have made it better and I wouldn't have expected the baby to improve if this was the cause. So I would agree starting it at this stage was probably not the right thing to do. Uh, Lumber puncture? No, and I I would agree with no here. It's completely contraindicated, we've got a baby who's postictal they're potentially septic so we may well have deranged clotting and low platelets so lumbar punch are completely contraindicated at the moment. CT brain? So yes to CT brain and I would agree with this at this stage Um, we're always keen in pediatrics to avoid doing a CT brain given the radiation involved with it and particularly when we have an alternative which is ultrasound we can look in at the brain without any radiation. Now there's, there's one major thing that's concerned. There's a couple of things that concern me, but one thing that really concerns me about this patient, and that is the sluggish pupils. And um, The bulging fontanelle is a concern, the seizures are a concern, but the sluggish pupils to me are a real concern. So I would be doing a CT scan on this patient. Um, so I'll go ahead and show you that. Okay so our CT scan showed generalized cerebral edema in this patient so worth doing. In the past I have used the argument that I'm going to try and avoid radiation. I'll maybe do an ultrasound and if the ultrasound is okay I'll reassure myself that I don't need to do a CT. I have learnt from this and I have had patients that have had significant intracranial pathology but had a normal ultrasound so this maybe, I would recommend doing a CT on. Okay, so we'll go back and look at our bloods. So the ones you had chosen were, we wanted a UNE liver function CRP. We were going to do a blood gas and we were going to do ammonia. So I'll let you have a look at the results on the screen there. So I think to maybe point a few of them out, so we've got a normal sodium, 138. Potassium is actually normal in the serum at 4.9. Urea, 2.6. Creatinine, maybe a little bit out of keeping with that low urea at 82. Uh, ribbon's up a little bit at 139, but we're a three-day-old baby. Liver enzymes are a little bit deranged, CRP less than 1. Um, going over to look at our blood gas, we can see things have continued to improve, which is what we would expect. Lactate's down to the normal range, 1.8. Calcium's up following the correction and the haemoglobin remains stable. But the the big important result here is the ammonia of 983. So this was the test you had to send off because if you hadn't sent it off you wouldn't have actually known about this. So let's go on and look and I'm going to ask you now to vote over in the chat which of these do you think is the most likely diagnosis given the information that you have at the moment. Yeah so we can see the results coming in are very clearly metabolic. Um, If you didn't have that ammonia you might go down a different route. Sepsis meningitis is would very well fit into this. Um, um, as we know with ammonia, the one of the key things is picking it up early. so I would strongly encourage you to send this off early in any clappne in it. Okay, so we're going to go on to our last lot of potential interventions that we can do. So we've got a, a list on the screen. Um, what I want you to do is go over to the YouTube chat and include everything in your list that you think we should do at this stage. Leave anything out that you don't want us to do. So I'll run you through the options while we're waiting. So we've got hypertonic saline, two-thirds maintenance fluids, normal saline and 5% dextrose, neuroprotective measures an arterial line, uh, loading doses of sodium benzoate, sodium phenylbutyrate and arginine, time critical transfer and discussion with a paediatric metabolic consultant. Okay, uh, we'll make a start of going through the list and I know more answers will come in as we're working our way through them. Um, hypertonic saline, So the vote was no to this. Um, I probably would give this baby some hypertonic saline. And the reason is we've got clear signs of cerebral edema on a CT brain. We've got a baby who is suffering from the effects of that. Um, They've had seizures. They've got a coma scale of three and they've got pupils which are now sluggish. Um, So it makes sense to me, swollen brain, to try and relieve it, give some hypertonic saline, draw some fluid out of the brain. And potentially fix that problem. So I, I personally would give this baby some hypertonic saline and would recommend you do the same. The two-thirds maintenance fluid is normal in five? No and, and no is the right answer here. Um, the dextrose concentration is the error here. Um, when you've got a metabolic baby like this you want to make sure they're anabolic switch off catabolism and to do that you're gonna need a glucose delivery somewhere between about 8 and 10 milligrams per kilogram per minute. So um, 5% dextrose and restricted amounts aren't going to do that for you. So you're going to want to have the baby on 10% dextrose and any of the infusions you're making up, you're probably going to want to put in 10% dextrose as well. Neuroprotective measures. Yeah, and again, that makes sense. That goes with a hypertonic CLM. We've got a baby with raised intracranial pressure cerebral edema, we're going to do simple neuroprotective measures. I'm not going to dwell too much on these because Stephen's going to cover these later on in his talk. But simple things like keeping the baby head up 30 degrees, um, making sure you control their CO2 and their oxygen, making sure you've got a good blood pressure to perfuse the swollen brain, simple things like that. Um, Arterial line. no, and no is the right answer here as far as I'm concerned in most of the cases. And the reason it's a no, a lot of you may be questioning that um, is because you need to take a step back and look at the big picture for this baby. So this is a baby that has a significantly elevated level of ammonia and what we know is that the higher the ammonia is and the longer it's elevated for, the worse the neurological outcome. So we need to get this ammonia reduced as quickly as possible. There's a range of treatment options and Siobhan who's going to follow me is going to talk on a lot of these after me. Um, You do simple things, you put the baby nil by mouth, you're going to maximise their glucose delivery so that you make them anabolic rather than catabolic. You've got to start some of the metabolic drugs that Siobhan's going to touch on later on as well. Um, But these will maybe bring an ammonia that's 300 down in a timely manner to a safe level. But an ammonia of 900, they are not going to bring down quickly enough um, to preserve this baby's brain and give them any chance of a good neurological outcome. The only way to do this is with filtration or dialysis. So your goal now is to get this baby as quickly as possible, but it has to be safely, but as quickly as possible to a center that can put them on to a filter. So anything that delays that unnecessarily um, is not going to be in this baby's best interest. So this I would not recommend you put additional lines in particularly given our baby's now cardiovascular stability at the moment. If you give me a choice of being on a filter 30 minutes earlier or being on a filter 30 minutes later with an art line in, I would certainly pick the first one been on that filter 30 minutes sooner. The one circumstance if you have a massive team of people involved and the art line can be put in while it doesn't delay the time critical transfer by all means do that. But in my experience, it distracts the rest of the team from the true goal which is a time critical transfer to definitive care. The metabolic drugs, I think, are exactly the same story. Um, Do you know where you're gonna get these in your hospital? Do you know how to make them up? I would imagine it's gonna take the best part of 45 minutes to an hour to work all this out. That is gonna distract the rest of the team. It's gonna take team members away from preparing this baby for a time critical transfer. So most of the circumstances, if you can get this baby out the doors and on a filter, that's probably in their best interest. If there's some unnecessary delay with the transfer, or you have a really effective team where these can be made up in serious to getting the baby prepared for transfer, by all means go ahead with them. And Siobhan's going to talk a little bit after me about some tricks and tips for actually preparing these drugs and show you how you can get a reference to do it. Uh, Time critical transfer, I've already answered that one. This is the, the key goal. And I'm going to share a peril with you that one of my consultant supervisors taught me in the past. And that is the very moment you realise you've got a time-critical transfer. And that is the moment somebody tells you the ammonia is 900. You call a blue light ambulance at that stage. And the reason for that is if you have two paramedics standing at the bottom of the bed with their arms folded or their hands on their hips you are not gonna do any unnecessary interventions for that child. You're not gonna put arterial lines in, you're not gonna put catheters in. That is going to be your prompt to get that child out the door and to definitive care as safely and as quickly as you can do it. And then the final one, discussion with a metabolic consultant, is an absolute must, and we're gonna do this in our case. We're gonna go to Siobhan shortly. The other team you want to discuss with is the PICU. So that when you arrive through the doors, They have a filter run through and they have somebody scrubbed and ready to put the vas cath in. So there's absolutely no delay in getting this kid on a filter. Okay, so in summary, the differential diagnosis of a collapsed neonate is sepsis, cardiac, metabolic and non-accidental injury. I'm going to add a fifth one to this, and this is from having edited some others' talks from Paediatric Emergencies 2020, and then reflecting back on my own experience over the last few years. And the fifth one I would add in is the surgical abdomen. Think of things like a malrotation and a volvulus and ischemic gut as a potential cause of a collapsed it as well. We always learn as we're doing these and I've added this on, this used to start as an original three and non-accidental injury got added into it and then going to add the surgical abdomen on as well. Remember to resuscitate the hemodynamically unstable patients before you intubate them, otherwise you'll find yourself doing CPR. Uh, Don't forget to send an ammonia, if you hadn't sent the ammonia in this case you wouldn't have got the diagnosis so quickly. And then remember when once you find out the ammonia is elevated Remember, reducing it quickly is time critical. So try and get that done straight away.